You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Gospel of John, chapter 3. And we will begin with a word of prayer before we begin. Our Father, we are thankful to you that you've given us your word, that you have given us um, a reason to celebrate, not just today, but each and every day. We thank you that our Savior is risen again, that we have confidence in that, that the tomb is still empty. We thank you that he lives, that he lives evermore to make intercession for all those who come to him by faith. We thank you that he is able to save us to the uttermost from our sin. We thank you that he is risen and you have exalted him and made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus who was crucified and died on a cross for our sins. We ask now, Lord, that as we open your word, as we look at these truths, that you would open our eyes and open our minds, open our hearts to receive your word, to receive that truth, and may your spirit be our guide, and may you be glorified and pleased this morning to meet with us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, indeed, the tomb is still empty, is it not? Today is Resurrection Sunday, and we gather here to celebrate the resurrection of Christ today. Not that we don't do this every Sunday or even every day, but it seems that on Resurrection Sunday or Easter Sunday, we do so in a more specific and focused way, and we even sing songs really that are geared more toward the resurrection of Christ, even though the resurrection of Christ really is the meat behind all that we are and all that we do as Christians. It's not as if the resurrection of Christ gives meaning and hope and purpose and direction on just one day of the year, that being today, but actually every Sunday is a celebration of the resurrection of Christ because it was on the first day of the week that the Lord rose. It was on the first day of the week that the Lord, after his resurrection, met with his disciples and appeared to them. It was on the first day of the week that uh, on the day of Pentecost when the church was born, and it became the habit and the pattern in the early church, early in the in the church, right from the book of Acts, for the people of God to meet on the first day of the week to observe it as the Lord's day. And they gave that day over and set that day aside to observe that day because that was the day on which the Lord rose from the dead. And they were daily in the temple meeting with one another and preaching and teaching and observing the the apostles' doctrine and fellowshipping together and worshiping. But the Lord's day was a special day. Sunday was a special day because that was the day that Christ rose from the dead. And the disciples, the apostles, did not place their faith in just an illusion or just a story or a fabrication or even a, a dead man. And it wasn't a spiritual resurrection that they preached. It was a literal, bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the grave three days after he was crucified. And what was the evidence of that? What was the proof of that? Well, when the apostles went out into the streets of Jerusalem and began to proclaim the resurrection, all of the opposition that came against them could have easily disproved their claim if they had just gone to the tomb and produced a body. But they couldn't do that because there was no body, so they fabricated this lie that the disciples had stolen the body. Which, of course, was a lie then, and it is a lie today. And the apostles gave their lives, all but one of them gave their lives for the truth that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the grave three days after he was crucified on the first day of the week. The evidence of that is the empty tomb. By the way, and as much as I love the song, it's not, I know he lives because he lives within my heart. I hate that, those words. I love the song, but I hate those words. And I'm not suggesting we stop singing it. 
Yes, we keep singing it, but somebody should rewrite the words to that. I don't know he lives because he lives within my heart. A Muslim could say that. I know Muhammad is true because Muhammad lives within my heart. Well, it goes beyond that. I mean, if you're talking with a Muslim and the Muslim says, I know he lives because he lives within my heart, and the Christian says, well, I know Jesus is the way because he lives within my heart, then where do you go from there? No, as Christians, we point to something more than the reality of the indwelling of Christ in us, in his spirit, but we point to the empty tomb. I know he lives because an empty tomb is there to show that my Savior lives. And he rose triumphant three days after he died. Well, today is Resurrection Sunday, and I could have today turned to 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection chapter. It kind of lays out all the implications of the resurrection. Or it could have gone to the end of one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and uh, looked at the details of the resurrection or that first resurrection morning. But I chose today instead to do, just to continue on what we have been going through here, and that is John chapter 3. And that's why I asked you to turn to John chapter 3. We're going to look at John 3.16 because I think that on Resurrection Sunday morning, John 3.16 is as appropriate a verse as any to talk about the reality of what God has done for us in Christ. And the resurrection plays into that. John 3.16 really is, I would say, the gospel in a nutshell. It is irreducible in its minimalistic approach. There's You can't take anything from that without destroying everything. It is... Basically, the entire revelation of the Bible, the whole gist, the central theme of the Bible stated in an economy of words that's simply stunning. 25 words in the Greek, basically equivalent in our English translation. And yet that is the entire message of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament anticipates and looks forward to and expects John 3.16. Everything in the New Testament unfolds, unpacks, applies John 3.16 and explains John 3.16. What is John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How is it that God has secured that promise for us? It was through the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is how God secured that promise that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Because it is not that God asks us to believe in a dead Savior It is not that God asks us to believe in an ordinary, merely uh, uh, insignificant man who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, but God asks us to place our faith. Christ asks us to place our faith in Him who was dead, buried, and rose again. So we're in John 3.16. And last time we were together, a couple weeks ago, I gave you basically a five-point outline for John 3.16. We got through the first point, and that is that God so loved the world. And we are looking at John 3.16 from the vantage point of the love of God. That the love of God is manifested in the object that He loved. He loved the world. Second, the love of God is manifested in the gift that He gave, that He gave His only begotten Son. It is manifested in the, the invitation that is offered that whoever believes, and that is the response, that's the fourth way in which the love of God is manifested, the response that is required, just simple belief. Not good works, not law-keeping, not self-righteousness, but just believe. And fifthly, the love of God is manifested in the deliverance that is promised. In the object that is loved, in the gift that is given, in the response that is requested, in the invitation that's offered, in the deliverance that is promised. For God so loved the world, that is the object that He loved, that He gave His only begotten Son. So today we're just looking at that second phrase, that He gave His only begotten Son. And what does that mean? What does it mean that God gave His only begotten Son? Often in Scripture, you're going to see this in just a second, the idea of love is often coupled with the act of giving. In fact, I told you last time that 
God's love for the world, which is manifested in this object that He loved. It's not just a few in the world, but the entire world, the entire mass of humanity. God had a real, deep, abiding, and meaningful love. In fact, a love that is so deep and so profound that you and I can never mimic it. You and I can never even comprehend that type of love. Because He loved a world full of rebellious, sinful wretches like you and I. And that love of God, which was so great, so meaningful, so profound, prompted Him to give something. It is not that just God loved the world and he so he wrote it a love letter, but he gave or he offered something of equal depth and equal profundity, and that is the gift of his son. For God so loved the whole mass of humanity that he gave his only begotten son. That type of love, agape love, is a sacrificial love. Agape love, sacrificial love, has to give. It is its very nature to give. It is impossible to love somebody with agape love, sacrificial, self-giving, unidirectional, unelicited love, and not offer something or give something to the object of your love. Agape love has to give because that's its nature. It can't do otherwise. If you say that I love somebody, and what you mean by that is I love you in an agape sense, I love you sacrificially and selflessly, but you never give or sacrifice anything for the object of your love, then what you have is not agape love. Agape love has to love. That is the love with which God loved us. It was a sacrificial, giving, unidirectional, unelicited love. He didn't wait for you and I to love Him. We don't love Him because, we don't, we love Him because He first loved us. It's not that He loved us because He saw that we were so lovable, or that we were so worthy of His love, or that He saw that we would be able to return His love. If God had waited for you and I to be worthy of His love, He never would have loved us. And if God had waited for you and I to be able to return that love, He never would have loved us. Because we, in our fallen and sinful state, were never able to earn, deserve, elicit, or even to return that love to Him. But He loved us before we loved Him. He loved us before the world was. He loved us before a single molecule was spoken into existence. And He loved us enough to offer His Son and to have the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world in the purpose and the plan of God because of His love, His deep abiding love, not only for us, but for all of humanity. And so He gave to us His only begotten Son. And that love has to give. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2 tells us to walk in love just as Christ loved you and gave Himself an offering and a sacrifice for sin to God as a fragrant aroma. Ephesians chapter 5, husbands are told to love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for us. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. See the the combining of loving with giving? God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son. Husbands are to love their wives just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. 1 John chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation, that is, the satisfaction for our sin. God loved and God gave. That type of love has to give. So what is it that God gave? God gave His only begotten Son. He so loved us that He gave His Son. John 15, verse 13, Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. And that's exactly what God sent his son to do, to lay down his life, to die for his sheep, to purchase his bride, to die for us, to pay the penalty for the sin debt that you and I owe. That love of God, he gave his only begotten son. There are three members 
to the Trinity. Now you could prove the deity of Christ and the reality of the Trinity just from John chapter 3 verse 16. And my point, my goal here this morning is not to prove the deity of Christ. We've seen that in chapter 1. We saw it illustrated in chapter 2. It's actually all the way through the Gospel of John. Chapter 1 and chapter 2 show us that Jesus existed before the creation of the world. He was equal with God. He was God and that he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he, we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. But here in the passage is Jesus saying that he himself is the Son of God. That is a statement of assumed deity. He is assuming, he is implying, he is explicitly stating, actually, that he is God in human flesh. Now every Jew and any Jew who heard Jesus claim to be the Son of God would have understood exactly what he was claiming to be and to do. Jesus was claiming equality with God because the Son, in the Jewish mindset, and actually in reality, in the Jewish way of thinking, the Son always shared the nature of His Father. And so for somebody to be the Son of somebody else meant for them to have the same nature as that individual. My Son shares the same nature as I do, as me. We have the same nature. A similar looks, similar personalities, all of that stuff, but the exact same nature. Human nature. For Jesus to claim to be the Son of God was for Him to claim to share the same nature as the Father. That's why Jesus in John chapter 10 could say, I and the Father are one. We have the same nature. We are one in substance, one in nature, one in power, one in eternity, one in being, but not in person. Three separate persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons are the one God. One God eternally existing in three separate persons. So God the Father so loved the world that He sent His Son, His only begotten Son, Now here's something interesting, and this is just for those of you who enjoy the Greek and all of the stuff that goes with the Greek. In the chapter 3, verse 16, it's not the act of giving that is emphasized. In the English language, our word order determines the part of speech and a lot of times what part of the sentence is emphasized. So whether Bob hit the ball or the ball hit Bob depends on the word order and whether the direct object comes after the verb or or the noun comes after the verb or before the verb determines whether it's the subject or the direct object. Everybody follow that? In Greek, it's not that way at all. In Greek, it's not the order of the words that determines the part of speech. In Greek, the order of the words, a lot of times, oftentimes, determines the emphasis of the sentence or the statement. And in the actual Greek, it's not that he gave his only begotten son. It's actually the exact opposite. Son is first. For God so loved the world that his son, the only begotten, he gave. That's what's emphasized. It's not the act of giving. It is what is given. It is almost as if John is sort of blowing our minds at the beginning of that statement. God's love is manifested in this, that His Son, the only begotten, is what He gave. It's not just that He gave. He gives to the world a lot of things. He gives to the world life and air and pleasure and food and rain, and the seasons, and daylight, and nighttime, and all of the pleasures that come with life, and children, and the ability to enjoy all those pleasures, health, and goodness, the rainfalls, and the just, and the unjust. God gives a lot of things to the world, but nothing like this. He so loved the world that His Son, His only begotten, He gave. Now the phrase only begotten causes a lot of people some consternation, and needlessly so. This is now the third time that we've seen the term only begotten used in the Gospel of John. We saw it twice back in chapter 1 when we were looking at chapter 1. And I know that was just a couple of weeks ago, but I'm going to refresh your mind as to what 
the term begotten means. Monogenes is the Greek word, monogenes. And it doesn't mean begotten or begetting in the sense of procreation or producing or siring or creating something. So the English word begotten actually is a very unfortunate translation because it doesn't at all, especially in our modern lingo, it doesn't at all communicate the idea of monogenes. So what does the term monogenes mean? What does the term begotten mean? Well, even though I think it's an unfortunate translation, and actually I hate that word when I see it in the English language because it, sends, it tends to communicate to our minds that he had a beginning, that he came into being, that the Father created the Son or caused the Son to exist or in some way procreated the Son or that there's some physical or metaphysical relationship between the Father and the Son. That's what the term begotten creates to us. But none of that is meant by monogenes. None of that at all. What does monogenes mean? Monogenes means unique or only one. Now, that my NASB that I hold in front of me, which I love dearly, by the way, but it's a big swing and a miss when it comes to translating monogenes in this verse because it uses the term begotten. So I have to give kudos where kudos are due, and that would be to the NIV. This is probably only the second or third time in all 14 years of preaching that you've ever heard me say this, but the NIV has it right, and actually better. The NIV translates it, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. And the ESV, which is another good translation, the ESV translates it, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, and avoids entirely the use of the word begotten. Why? Because begotten communicates to us the idea that He had a beginning. And if He had a beginning, then He came into being at some point by a higher power, and if He came into being, then He cannot be God. And so it is ironic that in the Gospel of John, which really argues most vehemently for the deity of Jesus Christ, the eternal existence of Christ prior to all things, that we would find this term begotten there. What does begotten or monogenes mean? It simply means unique, only one. God so loved the world that His Son, His only or unique Son, He gave. Not His created or sired or procreated or produced or generated Son, but His unique Son. It speaks not of somebody's existence, not of somebody's beginning, but of somebody's uniqueness. The the onlyness, if I could use that word, the onlyness of the Son. It's used other times in the New Testament. You can see it when you watch how it's used elsewhere. You can see exactly what it means. In Luke chapter 7, it says, As Jesus approached the gate of the city, a dead man was being carried out. The only son, monogenes, of his mother, And she was a widow, and a sizable crowd from the city was with her. And what makes that story so poignant is the fact that this was this woman's only, only son. Luke chapter 8, verse 42, Jairus came to Jesus, for he had a monogenes daughter, about 12 years old, and she was dying. That is his only daughter, and she was dying. Luke chapter 9, verse 38, and a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. Same term, monogenes, my only or unique one. And probably the best, most telling use of monogenes in all the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 11, where it says of Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son, his monogenes. Now, was Isaac Abraham's only son? Abraham had another son, right? Who was older than Isaac by his maidservant, or Sarah's maidservant. So Isaac was not his only son in the sense that Abraham had only one, but Isaac was what? He was the only unique son. He was different than Abraham's other children. He was different. 
Why was Isaac different? Because he was the son of covenant. He was the son of promise. He was the son through whom all of the promises given to Abraham would be fulfilled. He was the chosen one. And so the New Testament uses the term monogenes to speak of an only child and a unique child. A child that is different than all the others. Jesus Christ is the Son of God in a way that is different than you and I are children of God. You and I are children of God by adoption, by faith. Jesus Christ is not the Son of God by adoption or by faith. Jesus Christ is the Son of God by nature. He is eternally God the Son. And you saw the term monogenes used back in chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory as of the only begotten, the unique one from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in chapter 1, verse 18, John says that uh, Jesus is the only begotten, the monogenes God, the only begotten God who has revealed to us the Father. Jesus stands in special relationship with the Father, and so He is uniquely qualified to manifest and to explain to us the nature of the Father because He is the unique Son. Now, cultists and those who like to deny the deity of Christ, the preexistence of Christ, love to point to monogenesis. He say there He was begotten, He was created, or He was brought into being. But that's not the term, that's not what the term monogenesis means. It just means unique. God so loved the world that His Son, His only unique Son, He gave. That is the value. Do you notice there the value of the gift? That He is the Son of God. That is a gift that is more valuable than anything else that God could have given to demonstrate His love for the world. That He gave His only begotten Son, and He who shared the same nature as the Father was valuable. This one, the Son, is valuable beyond description. Every person in the world added together, the value of every human being who has ever lived does not equal the value of that one person, the Son. All of creation, all of the stars, the universes, the solar system, the galaxies, all of the created angels, all of this created cosmos, this world in which we live, and every human being who has ever inhabited it is not equal to the value of the Son. He is a, he is a gift that is beyond expression. That's why Paul calls him the indescribable gift. God gave us to us, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, the indescribable gift. How can you put words to that? That He is a gift that is of infinite value. Now, why is it that God would give that which was infinite in value for you and I? Is it because He values us infinitely? Or is it because we are infinitely valuable? And see, here in the English, it's all word order again, right? Why did God give His Son, who is of infinite and surpassing worth and value for you and I? Is it because we are infinitely valuable? It is not. We are wretches. But God chose to value us infinitely. Even though we are not infinitely valuable. And that is why God gave His Son. His only Son that He gave. Spurgeon said this, None of us has ever had such a Son to give. Ours are the sons of men. His was the Son of God. The Father gave His other self, one with Himself. And when the great God gave His Son, He gave God Himself. For Jesus is not in His eternal nature less than God, When God gave God for us, He gave Himself. That's why Acts chapter 20 verse 28 says that Christ or God purchased the church with His own blood. We are the church of God which He purchased. That is He, God, purchased the church with His own blood. That is an infinite being of infinite value and worth that was given to us. And He gave it not because we are infinitely valuable, but because He loves us. 
And the whole imagery of Father and Son that was used in this verse, that's used throughout the New Testament to describe Christ and the Father, that imagery is intended, at least on some level, to communicate to us the relationship that exists between the first person of the Trinity, that is the Father, and the second person of the Trinity, that is the Son. That they lived in infinite fellowship and love and uninterrupted fellowship and love with one another. And they lived in harmony together and they loved each other. And that relationship that exists between the Father and the Son is beyond ability in words to describe. And yet the Father gave His Son. That tells you something of the love of God, does it not? Let me tell you something. I, I would be willing to die for somebody else. I think it's a noble thing to do, and I think most people in this room can list a few people off the top of your mind, hopefully more than a half a dozen or so, that you would be willing to lay down your life in order to save. But I can say without hesitation, without reservation, or any embarrassment whatsoever, that I wouldn't put my kids on a cross to save any of you. I don't feel offended by that, because I'm not offended by the fact that none of you here would give your children to die on a cross in my place either. You wouldn't give up your child to do that. Some of you wouldn't give up your cat or your dog to do that to save my life. And I'm not offended by that. I understand. At least I understand the dog part and not necessarily the cat. (laughs) So I understand that. I wouldn't give my child to die on a Roman gibbet for you. I might be willing to do it, but I wouldn't put my kid up there to do that for you. But God so loved the world that His Son He gave. Now, did the Son go to the cross unwillingly? kicking and screaming, grinding his teeth, protesting all the way? Did he go to the cross unwillingly? No. Galatians 2.20 again. Christ loved me and he gave himself for me. He died for his bride, the church. He laid down his life for his friends. He died for his sheep. He did it willingly. It was part of his plan. It was part of his purpose. And he did so. But the Father also in that act was giving up something that was infinitely precious to him, and that is his own son. He so loved the world that his son, his unique son, he gave. What a gift that is. What a gift that is. What does it mean that the Father gave the Son? Just that He sent Him to earth? It's more than that. It's not just that He sent the Son to earth. It's not just that the Son came to earth. Even that is horrible enough to think that this one, who eternally existed in the form of God and was by nature equal with God, should leave all of the splendors of heaven, all of the glories and the riches of that throne to leave the worship and the praise of angels and to come down here and to be born on this clod of dirt in some neglected corner of a neglected country from a neglected people group in the home of a carpenter and that he would live and that he would know hunger and he would know thirst and he would know temptation and he would know hatred and scorn and that he would leave the presence of angels to come down here and to be mocked and ridiculed and hated by men that he would come unto his own and his own would not even receive him and that He would live under this sun, on this clod of dirt, and to know all of the realities of human nature and human temptation and human suffering, that is enough. But then to suggest that He would also, on top of that, have all of the scorn and ridicule of unredeemed and sinful men, and that He would live among disease and death and destruction, and everywhere He turned would be a reality, a reality check and a reminder to Him of Adam's fallen race and all that sin had done to this world. Everywhere he turned, everything he saw would be so utterly and totally different from anything he had seen in heaven or known in heaven. What a stooping down that is. But then on top of all of that, the Father gave the Son to die on a Roman cross. 
because that was the predetermined and predestined plan by the foreknowledge of God that He would deliver up His Son and that by the hands of sinful men they would crucify Him. That was the predetermined plan of God. That is what the Father gave the Son to. That He gave His Son, His only unique Son, to die on a cross. Now in closing, I want you to turn back to one other passage of Scripture, Isaiah chapter 53. And this is where we're turning actually for the resurrection. You say Isaiah 53 for the resurrection? That's right. The resurrection is in Isaiah chapter 53. Of course, the crucifixion is there as well too. Isaiah chapter 53, prophetic passage. Isaiah is speaking of this one who is going to come, who was known as the servant of the Lord. This is the Messiah. Isaiah is looking forward almost 700 years to this one who would come and perfectly do the will of the Father. And as the entire nation is anticipating and waiting for this deliverer to come, this one who would come and deliver the nation, Isaiah describes here a deliverance that was entirely unexpected by the whole nation of the Jews. Even when he came finally and fulfilled this passage, it was unexpected by the Jews. Isaiah 53, Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him and nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was an ordinary man, born in the form of a servant, came in the likeness of men to die in the likeness of sinful flesh. Just an ordinary Jew. He looked like a Jew, smelled like a Jew, talked like a Jew, walked like a Jew, acted like a Jew, a Jew in every fashion. And if you had bumped into him in the middle of the temple on some high holy day, you would not have turned around and thought to yourself, oh, that must be the Messiah. He looked just like an ordinary man. No majesty that we should be drawn to him. No attractiveness that he would stand apart from the crowd. Verse 53, in fact, he was despised and forsaken of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, we are healed. He's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about spiritual healing. Because in the context, what's being described is the transgressions and the iniquities for which this one was crucified. Verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray, and each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Peter says it this way, In His body, on the tree, He bore our sins. It was we who had gone astray. It is we who deserved this death. This being described in Isaiah 53. But God didn't give us that death, even though we deserved it. And we deserved it because we were liars, because we were thieves, because we were blasphemers, because we had violated all of God's law, all of God's Ten Commandments. We deserved the infinite wrath of God because we had sinned infinitely against an infinite and holy being. Our sin was heaped up, as it were, upon us. But verse 6 says, The Lord has caused the iniquity of us to fall on Him. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, and we, yet he did not open his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? He was killed. 
for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due. To whom was the stroke due? Us. But He died for that transgression that we deserve. The, the, the judgment that we deserve. Verse 9, His grave was assigned with wicked men. And yet he was with a rich man in his death because he had done no violence nor was there any deceit in his mouth. And you recognize there the prophecy of two things. Number one, that he would die with the two thieves. He died with thieves and though he was with the wicked in his death and he was with the rich man in his burial or in his death, that is, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But verse 10, and this blows my mind every time I read it, but the Lord was pleased to crush him. Just stop for a second. Tie this in with John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that it pleased Him to crush His Son. His only begotten, unique Son, whom He gave. It pleased the Father to crush the Son. Why? It's the love of God. Did it hurt the Father to do this? I think in some way it did. The anguish of Christ, the anguish of the Father, what went on between the Father and the Son on the cross, I don't think we will ever fully understand the depth of what went on there. But we can know this on some level, in some way, in a very real way, it pleased the Father to crush the Son. To crush Him, putting Him to grief, if He would render Himself as a guilt offering, And that's what Christ did. He rendered Himself as a guilt offering. He will prolong His days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in His hand. Now, let me ask you a question. How can you, for nine or ten verses, describe the incredible death and the suffering and being cut off from the land of the living and then get to verse 10, the middle of verse 10, and say, He will see His offspring and He will prolong His days. This is speaking of the same individual. How is this person going to be put to death, be stricken, be smitten, be cursed, to be cut off from the land of the living, and yet at the same time see his offspring prolong his days and have the good pleasure of the Lord prosper in his hand. How is that possible? Only one way. The resurrection. The resurrection. And it's right there in Isaiah 53. There's only one way that this one who was stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, who was crushed for us, who was put to death and cut off from the land of the living, could also see the good pleasure of the Lord prosper in his hands. And that is, if after the death, there would be a resurrection. Verse 11, As the result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. That, my friends, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because he poured out his soul unto death and he saw the anguish of his soul, at the same time the Lord will prosper in his hand and he will justify the many because he bore their iniquities. And what happens between those two things is the resurrection. It is essential to the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And because the tomb is empty and because the resurrection is true, then there are three things that are implied or proved by the resurrection. Since the resurrection is true, it is proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be. It's proof that Jesus is who He claimed to be. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, He is declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. Jesus didn't claim to be a great moral teacher or a good example or a martyr or just an ordinary man who had a special connection with God in the heavens. He didn't claim to be any of that. 
He claimed to be God in human flesh. He claimed to be equal with the Father. He claimed to be the Son of God, that is, God the Son. He claimed to be the pre-existent one who existed before the world was and enjoyed communion with the Father, existed in the form of God. He claimed all of that. And the resurrection is proof that Jesus Christ is who he claimed to be. Because no blasphemer, no liar, no, no fraud or charlatan would ever be raised from the dead. Second, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that he did what he claimed to do. He said he was going to come and die on, as a ransom for many. Mark 10.45. That he was going to suffer and die in the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And that he would die for his sheep. That he would die for his bride. That he would lay down his life for his friends. That he would atone for sin. He promised to do all of that. And the resurrection is proof not only that Jesus is who he claimed to be, but that he did what he claimed he came to do. And the resurrection is proof of a third thing, and this is the most somber and the most serious thing I could possibly tell you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is proof that there is a judgment to come. It is proof that there is a judgment to come. Acts chapter 17, verses 30 and 31, the Apostle Paul says, that God has commanded now that all men everywhere repent because God has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. And He has furnished proof to all men by raising this man from the dead. The resurrection is proof that there is a judgment to come. And that is why the command of God to us is to repent. You and I are to repent and turn from our sin because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is evidence that there is a judgment to come. If He is risen, then judgment is coming. As Dave said in the opening prayer, or uh, yeah, the opening prayer this morning in some of his opening remarks, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ and repented of your sin and been born again by the Holy Spirit, then today means nothing to you. It's just a church service. This is absurd. We get here and and we worship a dead man, the resurrection means nothing to you. Or if you don't believe in the resurrection, then certainly you would in your own mind think, well, I'm free to do what I want, and that's true. Because if Christ has not risen, then hey, eat, drink, and be merry, and tomorrow you die. This whole thing is a fraud. This whole thing is a joke. But if the resurrection is true, and you have not repented of your sin and been born again by the Spirit of God, then listen to me, you are going to get thumped on Judgment Day. You are in for a good old-fashioned thumping. Why? Because you're a liar, you're a thief, you're a blasphemer, you're an adulterer at heart, you're a murderer at heart, you're an idolater, you're greedy. And all of those things God will judge. And if you don't turn from your sin and repent, the Scripture commands, then you are in for a thumping. Because God is a just God, He is a good God, He is a righteous God, He is a holy God. And because He is all of those things, He must, He must judge sin. And so I ask you this morning, where do you stand in relationship to Jesus Christ of Nazareth? Have you repented of your sin and placed your faith in Him? That is the question you have to answer this morning. If you've never been born again by the Spirit of God, if you've never repented of your sin and trusted Christ for salvation, then you need to do that. That's the one question you need to answer. Because if you haven't, then the resurrection is absolutely the worst event in all of human history when it comes to your eternal destiny. Because it means you will be judged for your sin by Him, by Christ, whom you have rejected. But for those of us who are on the other side of it, The resurrection is not the worst event in human history. It is the greatest event in human history because it is the greatest news that anybody could be told. That this one whom I am trusting for my salvation is who he said he is, has done what he said he came to do, 
And since he has offered himself as an atonement and a payment for my sin, when I place my faith in him and trust in him, I know, I know that when I stand before God, that my sins have been taken care of because somebody else paid them. And he rose from the dead and is declared to be the Son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. And the tomb is empty today, and that is good news for us, is it not? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice in your goodness to us and in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Today, again, we are reminded not only of the reality of that event, but of the serious and somber implications, and even the joyful implications for those of us who have trusted him. Because we trust Christ, because the tomb is empty, because he has been stricken for us and been crushed for us, we can be assured of your love for us and of your willingness and your ability and your power to see us through on the day of judgment. Thank you that our sins have been taken away, that we have been washed and made white as snow, and thank you for the resurrection of your Son, which has secured our justification. We praise you in his gracious and good name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.